Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Bring yourself back online. No one knows what I'm thinking. Tell us what you think of your world. This is just a cheap trick. Some people choose to see the ugliness in this world. The disarray. I choose to see the beauty. Welcome to Still Watching Westworld, an unofficial podcast about the HBO series Westworld. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair Chief Critic Richard Lawson. Each week, we'll break down the latest theories, baffling questions, and hidden illusions, as well as occasionally chat with someone who's worked on the show itself. Richard and I want to break down the latest episode, Phase Space, directed by Tariq Salah and written by Carly Ray. This is the first episode that Richard and I have not had a screener for. So this is the first one we were watching live on a Sunday night along with the rest of you. Uh, Richard, what are your sort of initial early reactions to phase space well first of all watching tv like a civilian is really i don't know how you people do this (laughs) (laughs) television at 9 p.m uh not just television you can you know play you do a crossword on your phone while you're kind of half watching um (laughs) no i mean i think this episode as happens with a lot of shows um is a transition episode of sorts uh last week's was such a big kind of splashy uh, installment sort of game changing game expanding that you know I guess it makes sense that we have one that feels a little bit more contracted and a little bit um, a little bit more listless let's say yeah I guess I guess that's a, a charitable way to put it is that they're pivoting <laughs> kind of hard well I mean I, yeah to say that after listless but you know they're pivoting kind of hard to the next thing that they want to do they're phasing if you will to the next space but um, I I think after we loved four and five so much this is a little bit of a come down and uh, we'll talk about what we liked and what we didn't like. There is w- at least one, if not, I think two scenes that I consider stand out and, and as excellent as anything we've seen in the show. But then there's just some other stuff that requires, I don't know, moving of chess pieces on the board and maybe not the most graceful way the show has ever done it. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but one other, one other virtue I can find in this episode is that we get sort of a colliding of several plot lines and an anchoring them in time and space, which is always helpful in Westworld. Like everything, a bunch of stories came together and um, you know, the episode ended with an explosion, which we'll get to, but that explosion was felt across three different timelines. And I was like, okay, <laughs> we're all in the same place. So that's great. Um, we're not going to, we're not going to run through the episode in exactly chronological order because I want to save this opening um, with Dolores and, some character played by Jeffrey Wright until the end. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think, I think we should maybe just 
do the Maeve stuff first since it feels like the most divorced from the rest of what's going on. Does that work for you? Yeah, that makes sense. Let's do it. So we are still in Shogun World and we see Akane, the character played by Rinko Kikuchi, sort of attending to her dead daughter figure, uh, Sakura, and as Maeve looked on. And I have to say, like, if anyone deserves an Emmy for just silent, eloquent sympathy, it's Tandy Newton and her crinkled brow in this scene as she sort of looks on really tenderly and, at this ritual. Yeah, and she has blood splattered on her face the entire episode? Uh, at least while she's in the kimono. They, they don't bother to wipe the, the blood off oh, as they right. like yeah. all, in all of Shogun World. Yeah, and... Uh, yeah, until oh, she gets back to the West. Yeah, she's she's got this very elegant, as does Rico Cahucci, this very yeah. elegant <laughs> blood splatter that like <laughs> makes her sort of an uh, I don't know, a sort of painterly warrior or something. Yeah, yeah. I um yeah, I should mention obviously uh that this scene starts with I don't know, steaming corpses, shall we say? Mm-hmm. Uh what better way to start a, a scene? But uh Maeve has obviously used her voice of God to destroy the 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 warriors that were coming at her at the end of the last episode. Someone uh, on Twitter, I think it was, asked me why they didn't just reboot Sakura, uh, you know, using the text that they have on hand. And I think, I mean, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, yeah, because I mean, obviously the show has created that, you know, out or that sort of loophole or whatever. But I think that in this particular narrative, um, they're, there there seems to be a very sort of uh, a sense of like trying to honor the rules uh, that they believe in you know in the same way that um you know uh kane didn't want to be awakened by right. uh mave and stuff like that so i think that like mave is just sort of honoring the way that they're sort of almost tradition in a way and like yeah she knows she could just bring her back because she knows that none of this is actually like real real but you know, she also wants to like treat them fairly and be like, okay, this is what you believe. It's almost like, you know, like respecting someone's faith. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. I think it's a matter of not just that free will, free choice theme that gets hammered pretty hard in this episode, but also, yeah, just like respecting traditions, respecting mm-hmm. the reality that these people want to preserve, which is that dead is dead. Um, that, that the heart of this robot actually means something when you cut it out and carry it somewhere and light it on fire. So, yeah, it, to me, it, it just is Maeve respecting the res- wishes of the people that she's running with, um, as opposed to, of course, Dolores, who has no respect. Um, so <laughs> we then get this great duel between the Musashi character and, you know, a villainous uh, character in Shogun World. And once again, exactly what you were talking about, Richard, we get Maeve sort of standing back and telling um, Akane, you know, everyone has the right to make their own choice, even if it means they die. Yeah, Akane is like, use your magic, do it, like whatever. And Maeve is, you know, so I think that Maeve is is learning to be a sort of – discriminating <laughs> sort of <laughs> ma- magic yeah discriminating yeah. witch actually that should be the name of this episode not phase space the discriminating witch <laughs> I like would, that. would watch um yeah. but yeah and then we get this beautiful fight and like you know one of the reasons why we want to go to shogun world is to see um you know an actor like hiroyuki sanada as musashi uh take on this duel uh he told me when he when he spoke to vanity fair uh last week he told me that the dual swords uh that he uses in this scene is a reference to the real fighter historical fighter also named musashi so you get some nice historical context there a really beautiful fight yeah. and uh some nice thematic work and i Did really it- I, I really do enjoy everything that continues to happen in shogun world in this yeah. episode did it matter that i kind of didn't know who he was fighting no, <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah no. i was like sure i i trust that he was a bad guy in the last episode i just don't remember <laughs> because i mean I but little peek behind the scenes folks we 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 watched the last episode more than a few weeks ago so a long time ago yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, no, he's, he, I think he's like, uh, Musashi used to be the, um, you know, the Shogun's right-hand man, and this is the right. new Shogun's right-hand man, and so he's taking him down. And um, in pretty brutal fashion. I mean, the thing with the arm, and then 
that he decides to commit seppuku while also having his head cut off. I know. Uh, I, always, I, I definitely dramatic. thought it was going to be one or the other, like seppuku yeah. or I cut your head off. And it's like, nope, both for good measure. Yeah, I, I made a noise when it happened. <laughs> Uh, and then we get this, you know, very lovely sort of, uh, you know, honoring Sakura burial scene by by a beautiful lake. And then we get something that I was very surprised to see because I, I was given uh, to understand that some of the Shogun characters would carry on beyond this episode. But it looks like possibly this is the last we'll see of Akane and Musashi. But n- Musashi, but never say never, obviously, yeah. on Westworld. Um, here's a question I had about this. About yeah. this whole beautiful lake scene with a sort of Mount Fuji-esque perfect right. volcanic cone in that snowy <laughs> peaked in the distance. So I know that that Ford or whoever can terraform like a motherfucker. Like I know the terraforming they are on that. But yeah. can they also like climate form? Like because okay, so there's snow here now, you know, like I don't know. Like that that's confusing to me because are they are we all under some kind of dome? like where they can control weather or are we just in the natural elements? So I think that like the rules of this park, let's say as, as the show expands into like having a, a Mount Fuji kind of structure. Right. Uh, I'm just curious about how that all works. Are we actually watching the TV series under the dome? Is this a spinoff of the TV series? Under the Have dome? we been under the dome this whole time? <laughs> um, am I under the dome right now? Uh, the There is a line in this episode where Elsie says that QA managed to turn climate control back on. And my right. thought when I heard that was that that had to do with the AC inside the Mesa. Um, but perhaps she means whatever it is that makes the mountaintop snowy in Shogun World. I don't know, but and yeah, not we di- in Westworld, you know, like, right, right, right. Yeah. You're right. The different regions of the park have different climates that would imply a dome of some kind, or um, you know, some kind of resonant mutant on on hand to create storms. Or the Night King from Game of Thrones. Who cares? Or maybe um, we just don't understand what terraforming is fully. Maybe you and I are. <laughs> Oh, we cannot <laughs> grapple with or grok what, what, what that term actually means. <laughs> we cannot fully grasp the no. splendor of terraforming. Exactly. But um, yeah, so the you know this uh, this one group leaves, including the Shogun version of Armistice. You know she she goes with them, but the I have to say, like as sad as I was to see uh, two of the Shogun characters be left behind. Uh, when they approached the lake, I was like, man, Maeve's posse is getting really big and unwieldy. She has mm-hmm. like. 15 people following her and uh, we're going to need to winnow it down. And by the end of this episode, it is even smaller group. Um, so let's just, just do the entire Maeve plotline. So let's fast forward to the next thing that happens to Maeve. And frankly, when I was watching this episode, I kind of wish that this sequence had been put in another episode because it does seem like a significant amount of time passes. Like they change clothing. Maeve finally wipes the blood off of her. <laughs> finally, does yeah. her does her hair again. Uh, you know, so presumably they've traveled in the underground underground tunnels for a little while uh, to get from Shogun World to the homestead uh, where Maeve's daughter was. But um, we we see them emerge out of a grave, which is a very fun and evocative image. And Maeve and Sizemore share this sort of this this moment where she says something snarky to him. He's like, "Look, I found it. I did it. You gotta give me props for that." And she she's like, "Oh yeah, the one good thing you did." And then he looks a little wounded. Then she gives him a genuine thank you, and mm-hmm. it does seem to almost matter <laughs> to him that she does that. You know. Yeah, I think so. I mean, again, I'm I'm still not off the uh, the, the 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 ship train on this one. I I think oh, okay. I think they're kind of I don't know hinting at something maybe. I I was um you know when we were talking about the doubles and sort of how they're attracted to each other you know like we've got these these mirror images of armistice that seem to be you know wanting to be around each other uh, in sexy ways or not um, someone suggested to me that like. Lee Sizemore and Hector could uh, could go there because doesn't Lee Sizemore seem like the kind of guy who would always want to have sex with himself or something like that? No, um, totally. And so maybe maybe we could hope for a three way between Lee and Hector and Maeve. Um, sure. In the show's future, listen, it's gotta it's gotta be about it can't just be James Marsden. 
taking one for the team. You know what I mean? <laughs> when it comes exactly <laughs> to the pleasures of Westworld. But um, all right. So we, we get Maeve leaving her posse behind for some reason. And the only reason I can think of is to make it more dramatic later. But uh, leaves, <laughs> leaves her protection behind and goes to the homestead, sees her daughter finally, and then is for some weird reason surprised that there is a woman guarding this child, uh, a replacement Maeve there, because what did, did she think they were just going to leave that child by itself at the homestead? Like what? Did it's she it's been like Westworld's version of years or whatever. Like right, been, right. she hasn't been in that loop for such a long time. Right. At, at least as we understand it. So like, yeah, of course, like you're, you're an all powerful yet discerning, witch. like, <laughs> <laughs> figure that out that's pretty obvious to me and the show treats it like this big surprise and you're like right that makes total sense (laughs) exactly it's this weird revelation because you figure something's gonna happen when she meets her daughter you have to imagine that there's gonna be some sort of subversion of whatever her expectation is i just didn't think her expectation would be so uh naive or or Mm narrow-minded you know like i thought for sure she would be banking on there being a, a doppel of her there but uh yeah, it's a big it's a big reveal that doesn't feel like a big reveal, and then Ghost Nation attacks, and this is also confusing to me because um, I think we are meant to think of Ghost Nation as um, more helpful than harmful at this point in the narrative, mm-hmm. but Maeve is still treating them as if they are you know the brutal savages of you know the Westworld plotline, and that to me I don't like her because she is a brilliant but discerning witch like i don't like her making what looks to me like uh tactical errors in this scene you know what i mean she's yeah instead of trying to communicate um she's just or or even trying to use her powers which she doesn't she's just scrambling and afraid and now like you can make an argument that that's just trauma that's her trauma kicking back in that's her flashback to something terrible that's happened to her that's her motherly instincts overwhelming her like you know uh, more rational self whatever it may be but i I don't know i was just sort of like is this how maeve would handle this what what did you think of it yeah, that, I mean, look, we talked about this last week, you know, with, with a character becoming, you know, Lucy or Dark Phoenix or whatever, like uh, Limitless, <laughs> which Limitless. is my favorite one. Um, <laughs> with the character becoming that, you, you, you do run into, yes, you open narrative possibility, but you also kind of drown them out, you know, because like, well, she can do anything and what's the point, you know? And so the show trying to return to the stakes of her old loop where, you know, there was this tragic narrative with her daughter being killed by Ghost Nation, um, people, you know, like, uh, yeah, that was once a big thing for her, but now she's well past that in terms of, you know, she's transcended that moment in, in that loop, um, that she could just stop that immediately. And, yeah. and that she doesn't is weird. And also it's weird that like, so wait, so out here in this, what, what we've been told in the past, there are these sort of more bucolic, family friendly. I don't, I don't think that Maeve's story was ever that because obviously there is this like raid by, you know, Ghost Nation and they kill this kid, but like, so this is still running on its loop. You know, like over and over again or like because like the park has been, you know, in in disarray for a while now. And wouldn't the loop have happened and then there would be no one to kind of put set them back into place, you know. So I I don't really understand why timeline this is happening. Timeline. Yeah. Yeah. It's there are some holes I find in this season, like uh, something that a lot of people pointed out that didn't even occur to me is like. Are there no guests over in Shogun World? Like, why were there no humans mm-hmm. over there? Uh, why is the revolution not touching, not really touching Shogun World? Like, what's happening over there? Yeah, why are some loops resetting? It seems to me, and some aren't. Um, yeah, who's awake and who isn't? Like, it seems like the show has given itself a pass on really nailing down firmly the rules of what's going on in this particular aspect that you can stumble into loops still cycling elsewhere in the park. But yeah, if the loop of this homestead is a ghost nation raid, why a, why is that ghost nation pack even raiding? You know, like why are those, why are those uh, guys raiding when we've seen them already be more enlightened? So maybe they're not raiding. They're, they're like showing up. They're like, we're here to help you and take right. you to safety and Maeve overreacts or, or, you know, whatever. Could be. But, um, you know, and then and then her her protectors 
roll up and start shooting and, and firing arrows. Um, and then we get the the Sizemore betrayal, which like it's it doesn't feel like a big moment because that's kind of what you expect Sizemore to do. Uh, I I will say that I think Simon Quarterman delivers the conflict of it pretty beautifully in it. You know, like. I think I feel I feel his um, the ways the different directions in which he's drawn. Uh, it's not at all surprising that Felix is going to stick with Maeve, but um, that and then we just leave it there, and it's just like it's so unsatisfying to me this interaction, and I really do wish that it had been in next week's episode. <laughs> you know, like yeah. I I think to wrap up because uh, I think one problem with this episode is it visits every single character, which is something this season has of largely avoided doing. And that, that in that sense, it feels to me fairly fractured. And so I, I would love to have drilled down a little bit more in a few things. And I think this Maeve on the Homestead interaction would fit better with whatever happens next, which I assume we're going to see in the next episode. Yeah. I feel like they could have wrapped up the Shogun plot line if, if indeed they are wrapping it up. Uh, and then in that what could have been an episode and then, this right. could have been, you know, like they could have set off for this at the end and then, you know, dealt with it the next one. Yeah. And I think that episodes where they, they, you know, especially with a show that's kind of this sprawling, even though they are kind of bringing people together, like you don't need everyone in every episode. In fact, you right. don't want that, you know, yeah. it's better when they focus on certain things and, and you're like, oh, this is a Dolores episode. This is a Maeve episode, you know, it, it, because those seem to be the two binaries that we're operating on. Although there's also Bernard slash Arnold. So I guess it's, it's, I guess it's, it, it's a sort of, it's tertiary. It's in three pieces, but it, but like, you know, and, and that's okay. I think that's a fine structure, but yeah, this episode tries to cram in a lot. I also really feel like this episode skimps on like those tail section people. Like, where are they? What are they doing? You know, like, I just, I want to know what's happening with the tail section, the tailies, I think we're calling them. <laughs> yeah. What's going on with the tailies? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, and I, to that end, I want to say, uh, since it's, it has been several weeks since Richard and I recorded, I feel like Richard and I were really early to all of the lost jokes about this season. Um, just so you know, we are yeah, we were there uh, first. ahead of our ahead of our time uh-huh. when it comes to that. So um, please give us the respect we deserve. Okay, <laughs> so uh, let's do the William plotline uh, really quickly before we get back to everything that's interconnected. William is the other plotline that is sort of off the beaten track that's the man in black when last we saw him he was reunited with his daughter and so we get more emily and her dad issues stuff uh first we get um an answer to a question that a lot of fans had as far as i'm concerned a lot of watchers were like well what if this version of emily we're seeing is a host that Mm -hmm. ford has sent to mess with william as far as I'm concerned, that question is answered by him interrogating her and her denying it. I think it's bad storytelling if he asks that question, she denies it, and then later she is a host. Like, I'm not saying it couldn't happen. I just think that's bad storytelling to uh, interrogate that and then later be like, just kidding, I was lying. Any, any of this, like, I was lying is not my favorite kind of storytelling. What do you think? Do you think she's human or host? No, I'm 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 with you. I'm 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 choosing to believe that if this if the show addressed it in such a direct way, then that better be what the truth is because like that would just be a stupid bait and switch that like, you know, um, like it it's it's been enough of a of a fun mystery or or a surprise rather to find out that Bernard was uh, a host, right? And I feel like the show doesn't need to repeat that. Yeah, I think people are still kind of clinging to the theory that maybe the Man in Black, um is already a host and doesn't know it mm-hmm. that like this is something that robert's proving to him and this is actually a host version of william i don't love that theory um but that but like that i would accept because uh that hasn't been directly interrogated and if you want to surprise me with something that you haven't like addressed in the show yet that's fine but i i think i am firmly uh, of the belief that emily is a human um, yeah. yeah emily's real and I, uh, I but like i think in terms of the man in black being or william bill whatever we're calling him being a yeah. host i think yeah that could be a sort of satisfying answer to what this whole thing is that ford's doing to him right. and it would be why we saw him with jim delos you know do, doing these kind of like well, this is the you know 114th time we've met or whatever. 
because it's like, oh, so he thinks in his memory anyway that it didn't work, but it actually it did. But it right. worked on you, not you know. So I think that like that could be interesting, and I'd be okay with that. Absolutely. But yeah, with with this smaller thing, I like that they at least they addressed the the, the the possibility that in this world she could be fake. But right. I I think if she said she isn't, then let's I think that's that should be the answer. Let's believe it. Um, mm-hmm. Then we get. Uh, I actually think this is my favorite. Yeah, this is my favorite scene of the episode, which is this fireside chat, right, between um, William and his daughter. Um, You know, we've already talked about how Katya Herbers is uh, great in the show, and I think she is, and I think we're even seeing something much different from her, uh, the actress who's playing Emily, in this episode than we got, even when we maybe fell in love with her the first time, because she's just much more guarded and abrasive as you would expect her to be uh, around someone that she has all these like complicated emotions around. But I just think she's really selling the fact that I believe this is the same person, but it's so different from the woman that we met is, you know, that's, that's my take on it. But yeah, no, I agree. And I think that, you know, for an actor to show up in the second season of a show and to be squaring off against Ed Harris, like she just brings so much character and like force, you know, in, into the, into the role in this scene in particular. So yeah, I was really into it. I, I, I was texting with someone last night who, um, said that this was his least favorite scene. And I was like, oh. oh, that's wild because I think it was like the best. In the, and I also, I, you know, I, I think I've said this in an earlier episode, but like when you're watching a show like this where everything's going haywire and, you know, everyone is in, kind of indulging their worst impulses, et cetera, it gets to be very almost like hermetically sealed into this awfulness. And so any glimmer of like humanity or the outside world, like I really appreciate. And so even if it's just Emily talking about like the fact that she was a kid and that like, this park functioned in a different way for her when she was younger and may indeed function if it ever gets, you know, on its feet again for, for other people, you know, in the future. Like I, I just, I like that there is a, there was a little bit of a, a hint of like, not niceness exactly. Cause the whole premise of the park is kind of fucked, but like, you know, like something that isn't just killing. Right. I, that was a nice kind of reminder of the, of that, you know, reality as well. Yeah. And I, I thought Ed Harris was the best in this scene I don't know that I think we've ever seen him in this show because this is the most, despite like his confrontation with Dolores last season, which was supposed to be sort of a big emotional reveal for him. This is the like the ooey gooey center of Bill that I think we've seen is him like looking up his eyeballs gleaming with some like unshed tears as he's talking to his daughter over the fire. Like I just thought Ed Harris was uh, amazing in the scene. And um, yeah, and I love the bit yeah. about um, the elephants. You know, he says you were always scared of the elephants in the Raj world, and she's like, "No, I, I like I like them, but they, they they scared mom." You know, and that mom was sort of always wary of this place, and 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 I think that getting that the fact that like William, yeah, was at one point like a human being who like had a family and cared about that, and the park was not this kind of existential maze. It was just this kind of thing it was like an it was a discrete kind of object or even an abstraction in a way like and and now he's so deep in it that like it's nice to get a reminder that like in the past this the park was not so all-consuming and it had a sort of function and then that was and it and but but it remained outside of regular life yeah and, and some people are taking that elephant line to mean that Oh, this William is definitely uh, a host and he's glitching. And, and maybe that explains why he remembers Juliet cutting her wrists, like mem- remembers her cutting her wrists in the bathtub when actually like in another episode, he talks about her taking pills. Like is William, is the man in black glitching in memory? I took it to mean like if you have issues with your dad and you're confronting him and he misremembers something fundamental from your childhood, like, that's just bad dad. That's just bad daddy. Yeah, you know what I mean? Like, that's bad dad being like, oh, one of you women I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know? One of you women folk didn't like the elephants so yeah. much. Uh, but there's so much There's so much great stuff in this scene that um, echoes some of the things we talked about with William, you know, like, she accuses, you know, she accuses him of, like, disappearing into this fan, you know, basically he's been, like, role-playing too much and and then he like bitterly refers to himself as a you know if you see me as a pitiable man child is something yeah. he says and i'm like we, yeah that is how i see you you know we we should say to any listeners out there whose father or mother is is been larping too much we we do feel your pain we're not trying to make fun of 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 the scourge of parents larping and, and you know <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's a serious it's, problem 
it's a serious problem afflicting the nation. So, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, call a friend. Um, but the, the, that line that you mentioned where she says, um, what did she say? She was, she says, referring to her mom, she said she was never convinced this place couldn't hurt us. I think that's like a very vital Mm-hmm. line and i think we've talked about the various ways in which this this place could still very much hurt these two characters but um what i think is most interesting about this li- of this scene which is interesting for so many reasons is the lifeline she offers him which he refuses and whenever that happens right like a, a character gets a major lifeline offer to come with me now we can just go and leave this behind and he refuses by disappearing on her um you know, that's just something that's going to echo throughout whatever it is that whatever tragedy that I presume eventually befalls him, this choice here and whatever choice he makes in the end uh, are going to be connected. It feels like to me. Yeah. And, and, and I, I, those lifelines are always so like, especially with this, cause you're like, this doesn't mean anything. I mean, I guess it does now because the robots can kill people, but like it's, it's, a, it's leavable, you know, it is a contained ish thing. Um, and that people don't want to just take that out is frustrating. But also, I guess I have a, there's a question for me of motive here or not motive, but like consequence where like, so, so she wakes up, he's gone, he's left her, but like, so he left her essentially alone in a really dangerous situation. And I guess he trusts her to handle herself, but like in some ways she was safer when she was with him, even though he's like pursuing this kind of deadly agenda. Uh, or we assume deadly agenda. So I don't know. I, I, I question a little bit how, like the, the think the re- rationale behind just abandoning her, but I guess maybe he just figures she'll be okay if she just like leaves the park and, you know, in a quick fashion. I mean, I guess it's just bad dad doing more yeah. bad dadding. <laughs> yeah, bad dad. Um, but yeah, so she's, she's ticked. I don't know if she's going to keep going after him. She said she was looking for him or no, she, she said like she was sort of forced into Westworld because everything went haywire in the Raj. But like, we know that she was looking for something because she had that map, you know, Mm -hmm. so she wasn't entirely forthright. Like she didn't, uh, you know, I, I know I just said, like, if we hear a character say something, um, you know, we should believe them. But, like, if we hear her say she's not a host, we should believe her. But she does seem to have some kind of ulterior motive. She's not just there because Charlotte Hale invited her to the gala and she decided to go ride some elephants and other things uh, when she's in the Raj. You know, like, it's something else is going on with her. And I am interested to find out exactly what. Yeah, great. That is that. Well, and then we leave the Man in Black and Lawrence, uh, you know, under attack. Right. Um, Because without her to protect them, they are... Uh, in dire straits. So that is where we leave those two plot lines. And then the rest, the other three plot lines of the season uh, or mm. this episode are all connected. Let's quickly knock out the, I guess I would call it like the Charlotte Hale stuff, the Tessa Thompson uh, new extraction team. Uh, we get the clue from Charlotte in this episode of when we are, which is she says uh, it's been about a week. Okay, right. so we are about one in the in the two week chunk between Four's assassination and that beach scene that kicks off uh, the season. We are right in the middle, uh, which makes sense because we're right in the middle of the season. So it's been one week, uh, as the bare naked ladies would say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The run for Revoke is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowitz. Um, we should be the mayor of New York. We all support yeah. that. We support that. Very <laughs> <laughs> nice. Nikki. Yes. It's been really great she being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asher, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are... AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K and a winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mal. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's AWOK. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. 
That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. And, um, you know, uh, so there are some dead people in the Mesa, but not as many dead people as we see later. And actually some of the alive uh, people we see in black shirts, like there's one woman with these like yellow glasses that we see alive in this episode. We see her dead in the Mesa later uh, in the timeline. So mm-hmm. uh, not all of – obviously not all of these people are going to survive. But um, – what but we, we find don't out- know how they end up dead. We don't know. Like, mm-hmm. I guess there's just a second pass through of this, right? Right. So what this feels like is that, you know, um, Charlotte said early in the season, like, the rescue team won't come until I get them Abernathy. She gets Abernathy. She nail guns him to a chair. Mm-hmm. He's not going anywhere, except he probably is. Uh, Stubbs looks squeamish. It seems like Stubbs has learned a bit more empathy for the host, I guess, from his time with Ghost Nation, question mark. Um, and so Abernathy is contained. She calls in the rescue team. We get this new rescue team led by this guy named Coughlin, uh, a, a real mustachioed Irish son of a bitch. And, um, and yeah, and so this is the first wave of rescue. And I think they're, I believe, they're all going to die. And what we see in the premiere is the second, at least the second wave of rescue. Right. The real, the real, yeah. The um, real cavalry, yeah. you know, sort of thing. Um, what did you think of all this Charlotte Hale stuff? Uh, I mean, you know, for Tessa Thompson's sake, I want to be like into it, but like, it just doesn't, this is kind of like the, the, the sort of military industrial sort of process stuff that I'm like less invested in. Right. Um, I also, I think the timeline thing is becoming a bit of a hindrance in a way because, you know, you have a very small window of time to sort of tell stories in. And so either things start to feel like too much or too little in a way. Like, I don't know that we needed to spend all this time. Like the Abernathy thing, it's like, okay, can we just like figure out what's going on with that and then like move on? Uh, I guess we're getting, I guess we, we got to that point now, but... Um, you know, it was fine. I mean, again, Tessa Thompson's great. No, no, I I never have any beef with the Hemsworth brother. So, um, <laughs> yeah. yes, we are we are of Church Hemsworth uh, on this podcast. But yeah. um, the I agree this and the Coughlin character as much as you know as much as I kind of like him. Someone I know called him uh, New Muldoon. But like as much <laughs> as I as much as I like him, and he's played by actor Timothy Murphy, who played. Uh, did you ever watch Sons of Anarchy, Richard? No, that was a little too butch for me, I'm afraid. Yeah, it's very butch. And he played an, uh, an Irish mobster named Galen O'Shea. And like, it gave me kind of acid flashbacks to some of the, the Irish plotline on Sons of Anarchy is kind of famous for being like, I don't know, their, their season two of Lost. They're like their bad move that they've made. So Galen O'Shea, one of the Irish kings of, of Sons of Anarchy, I was like, Oh my God, Galen's here with a big mustache. <laughs> but, um, I, I like his like, terribly offensive machismo like i can't i don't really care about this plot at all i like his performance i'm also convinced he's not lasting past two episodes you know we've already seen that happen this season with like um jonathan tucker's craddock character you know like it seems like they're introducing these like um you know kind of cartoonish in a good way like over the top characters but i'm like i'm not gonna get too interested in you because you're not you're not saying yeah, i know they're you're gonna not. have like little mini arcs and then that'll, yeah that'll be it. yeah exactly so um you know so he's bossing everyone around trying to make uh stubs feel bad about his first name being ashley um and their whole they get the map online and they see the train coming their way right before the explosion hits the mesa so that's one mesa group down um then i guess we should probably do bernard and elsie um and i i actually think the most fun part of this for me is i don't think we we already saw a group go in through on that on the train tracks through the tunnel into the mesa like we already saw that happen this season but i don't think they went through that hallway that we saw jimmy simpson walk 
down onto the train uh, in season one. And it was fun to see the sort of hellish mirror image of that set uh, as Elsie and, and Bernard walk into the Mesa. What did you think of that um, whole introduction? Yeah, no, I think, I think again, like I'm, I, I'm, I'm more invested in this than I am with the Abernathy stuff and, and uh, you know, Charlotte, but like I, uh, I, <clears throat> I have a hard time trying to figure out where this all fits, you know, and like what, what's going on with it. It's weird. I mean, I guess it's weird that they've kind of, sidelined Jeffrey Wright or, or, you know, Bernard Arnold, whoever, like in this kind of way, but I guess he, he couldn't really by design be central to the Maeve narrative or the Dolores narrative. Like he's more the sort of like background that's like, I don't know, I guess filling out the sort of the, the, what the, the kind of science of the story. And I guess that, that, that's, that's essential for understanding the broader show, I guess. But like, it suffers from a lack of excitement, I guess, you know, like watching the great Shannon Woodward as Elsie figure something out while like typing on a fake computer, like sure. But like it, it lacks this, the, the sort of narrative, you know, oomph that, uh, the, uh, the other stuff that's happening in the show. So it's a little bit like a, a come down when, when we have to kind of sit through these scenes. Yeah. It's a little inert, but <laughs> like if anyone, I think Shannon Woodward is doing such a good job of selling yeah. something that f- could feel way more inert than it does. Like uh, as opposed to, Tessa Thompson, who like, it's so interesting to me because Tessa Thompson is cast in this role in season one where she's like this, um, head of Charlotte Hale, like head of the board of directors, uh, a real mover and shaker. And a lot of people had issue with her, like they thought she was too young, um, or, or whatever for that role. But I really liked her in that part in season one. Here she is. Yeah. Like she's barking. She's like a general. She's like barking orders and very like, brusque in a way that doesn't feel nuanced and it just feels like a, a a mismatch for this for this particular character um at least you know with shannon woodward this her staring at a screen she's like oh my god look at this i'm like oh my god what elsie what are you looking at um is is sort of the best she could do with a lot of exposition she has and, and the discovery she makes uh is that uh, this part of the park that's called the cradle which we will get to in a bit uh is Actively fighting back against QA, which is quality, quality assurance, which is the, you know, Stubbs' team and, and all the black shirted people trying to get control of the park. The, the cradle is reaching out and defending, um, whatever the hosts are doing in the park. And so she's like, who could it be and what could it be? And in classic Jurassic Park style, uh, Jeffrey Wright goes, you can't access it remotely. You have to go there. You have to go you, there. You have to go there and flip the breakers yourself. So, uh, you know, so they go to the cradle of the, in the Mesa and, uh, it, it looks like a big server, but do you, do you have like a, do you feel like you have a clear understanding of what the cradle is? Okay. Well, two things about this one. Yeah. Speaking- <laughs> Speaking as someone who, again, Sons of Anarchy was a little too butch for, um, <laughs> does Elsie ever make you think about the four sorted rooms in Chelsea? You know, like Cabaret? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Every yes. time I hear, every time I hear her name, I just started humming the song. Anyway, uh, two. When, like, uh, like when you go, you're going like Elsie, like that? Yeah. 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 yeah you know, the, the happiest corpse you've ever seen. Um, <laughs> Two, I have no idea what the cradle is or what it does, and I and I rewound and I tried to like parse through what what but like I just don't. Is it is that a fault a fault of the shows? That's a fault of the show. It and, is okay, and, and it's and it's emblematic, I think, of what the show is doing this season, where it's relying so much on things like podcasts like this, or explainer posts on VanityFair.com, or extraneous material from HBO, because HBO after this episode came out released, I want to say like a five minute video on YouTube explaining what the cradle is, but that's not how you should do your TV show. I think like you don't, you can't just like no. have a five minute footnote on HBO of like hold up, let's explain what the cradle is. But um, you know, Elsie does say some stuff in this episode. And this is my best understanding of what the cradle is. The cradle is – because even after I watched that five-minute YouTube video, I was still like, mm, uh, I don't know. It is a simulation of the park that's running at all times. Uh, and it's got a stored version of every host 
in there running their loops. And it's the way in which, uh, the park, I don't know, figures out, uh, glitches possibly. I, I don't know. It's, it's more complicated than it needs to be. But I think what is most important to know is that it's, um, there is a stored version of every single host in there on their loop, uh, which is something see. we see. Um, and uh, what what used to be the case is that only the host could go in there. And what we find out in this episode is that uh, Ford has figured out a way to put himself in there. Uh, spoiler for the end of this episode. But basically they go into the cradle and they still can't figure out like who it is in there and what's going on. And then Bernard says, we'll just like, I mean, this is, <laughs> this is a version of like hard porting, which we've talked about this season. He's like, just dial me in directly. Take, take the little pearl out of my head, the little mind egg, drop it in a thing and I'll be inside the cradle, I guess, is something that you can do as a host. So that's what they do. This very painful scene. They crack him open, take the, take the pearl out and all of a sudden he's in the cradle inside the cradle which a lot of people are calling the matrix um if you want to a simulation a simulated world where there aren't dead bodies everywhere in the sweet water it's like back to the sweet water we met uh at the very beginning of the show but there's nothing physical to it there's nothing physical to it right well there's i mean there's like servers in this room but but like the place where bernard goes in the for the rest of this episode is not a physical space and that's why we had it on the on the tv it was letterboxed it's letterboxed exactly and so and so that's like a little visual clue that we'll have going forward is like if you see something letterboxed you're inside the matrix if you want to call it that and why but why why do they have this Um, I think it has something to do with like helping, um, helping smooth out the programming throughout the park. Like it, Mm -hmm. you know, if you're listening to this and you understand coding better than two culture writers for Vanity Fair, uh, please do (laughs) write in and and let us and like explain to us exactly what it is, what programming function this simulation serves. It might be sort of like the fidelity test where it's like constantly running simulations to maybe, uh, uncover potential problems, potential glitches, you know, like something like that is, would be my guess. Uh, but Ford has found a way to put himself in there because we get, Bernard in the Teddy position, the usual Teddy position on the, on the train to Sweetwater. Uh, and he gets off and everything looks fine. And he walks in and he sees like the innocent version of Dolores and the more innocent version of Teddy. And, uh, then he, he sees a greyhound, which is a signifier to some people who obsessively watch the show that Ford might be coming. And then we walk into the saloon and, and Ford's there playing the piano. Obviously, the the piano and the player and the player piano and who's playing the piano at any given moment and who's the instrument, who's the composer is like classic Westworld nonsense. Uh, and so, you know, Anthony Hopkins at the piano makes a lot of sense. Uh, before I uh, before I go back to the Greyhound for a second, what was your thought when you saw Anthony Hopkins in this episode? Well, it's he he's shown in such a weird way that I was like, well, okay, like did they is this like Carrie Fisher in in um you know. Uh, Rogue, Rogue One, or, yeah, yeah, you know, like is is that what's happening? Um, uh, but I guess it was him. Um, so sure, I mean, like he, I, I think I said way early in this this podcast, like first or second week of it, like that the show does lack a little without him. Um, mm-hmm. if only because he was the weird, murmuring, sort of philosophical, kind of God whispery figure of the whole thing, and you almost want him to be narrating the show in a strange way. Um, and I also think that to have him gone entirely has been a problem in terms of getting with, with William because you're like, okay, but like what specifically is their relationship? You know, we didn't really have that established in the first season because they wanted us to surprise us with this fact that they were, you know, that it was young and old William. Um, but without him in the cast, without Hopkins in the cast, it's been hard to kind of, understand why exactly Ford would set up this elaborate game for William in specific. Um, I mean, they've tried to explain it and I guess I kind of buy it, you know, like he, it was kind of revenge in a way, but like, 
I don't know. Anyway, so if Hopkins is back, maybe that means in some sense that like we'll, we'll get a little bit of that sort of um th- those stakes will be kind of reintroduced into the show, which I'm happy about. And I'm I I'm a little frustrated because I um I was so adamant that, <laughs> that he wasn't coming yeah, back, and this makes me look like a dumb dumb. But like at least at least it's not that he built himself a body and he's just back and and like he's still alive or something you know like he's stored him he's uploaded himself to the cloud basically and you know we've seen him all season speaking through various hosts so really we should have like seen this coming because he like how else would he have been able to communicate with william through these various hosts throughout the entire um you know, season so far, how else would he be able to control whatever game it is that William is playing if he weren't, you know, in in the system somehow? Um, I did want to talk about a couple, a few Ford quotes that help illuminate this part. Um, in his, his speech he gave before dying in season one, he said, Mozart, Beethoven, and Chopin never died. They simply became music. And so I suppose in a certain way, like, he's become his code. That's what he's become. He, like, the implication being, like, he is the is the red, the human consciousness, the pearl that we saw Bernard printing two episodes ago. That's who he put in his pocket. That's who he took to the Mesa. And he dropped it into the cradle somehow. I don't know how the physics of all that works, but he dropped into the cradle somehow. So now Ford is in there in this Matrix version of Westworld um, that you can tell is not real because it's letterbox. Right. Um, <laughs> and then the other quote I want to read is about the Greyhound, the Greyhound speech he gives in season one. Uh, he talks about how as a kid, like – he uh, he had this greyhound and so he says a greyhound is a racing dog spends its life running in circles chasing a bit of felt made up like a rabbit one day we took it to the park our dad had warned us how fast that dog was but we couldn't resist so my brother took off the leash and in that instant the dog spotted a cat i imagine it must look just like that piece of felt he ran uh, never saw a thing as beautiful as that old dog running until at last he finally caught it. And to the horror of everyone, he killed that little cat, tore it to pieces. Then he just sat there confused. That dog had spent his whole life trying to catch that thing. Now it had no idea what to do. So the the greyhound in, in the Matrix acts as this like little harbinger of Ford. Like we follow the dog into the saloon like the greyhound's there. Um It could just be that Ford decided to have his like childhood pet with him. But I think we should you know, think about this speech, think about what it means for both like the hosts on their little loops, which is what we always sort of thought it meant. And also what it means for Ford to have, you know, torn his own park to pieces. Like what, what that means for him. Is he confused or does he have purpose? What is, what is he doing here? You know? Yeah. 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 I mean, again, I, I think I, I, I sort of miss all the sort of allegorical, sort of, <laughs> you know, murmury pontificating of, of Ford. So I, I, you know, I think that if, if, in terms of the show violating its rules about who's dead and who's not, like, yeah, that's kind of annoying. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I could use, you know, I think that Dolores has been the sort of stand in for, for its poeticism yeah. and it doesn't quite work as well for whatever right. reason not not because Evan, Evan Rachel Wood is a brilliant actress and she's selling it every step of the way but like I don't know I just sort of miss Hopkins's particular timber and so if he's going to be in whatever matrixy dream world that Bernard has to you know plug into once in a while to solve a mystery <laughs> and Ford's, <laughs> Ford's there to say something interesting fine I'm, I'm okay with that yeah, the other, um, you know, the Matrix is the Matrix is a really popular uh, comparison that people are making. To me, it felt like Inception. You know, like if we want to talk about Nolan stuff, even though Jonathan Nolan didn't write Inception, like this is another layer down in the narrative, right? Uh, you've got the same characters over again, but they're in a different position, and it's I'm frightened by this reveal because I feel like all the timeline trickery that's going on in the real world, if you want to call it that, um, is confusing enough. And now we've added another layer of anyone can kind of be and like, I don't know how the rules of this place work. I suppose maybe Anthony Hopkins will give it to us an exposition. But um, there's just a, a lot going on there. And this is where I want to circle back to the first scene that kicks off the episode where we see Dolores talking to uh, someone who we, maybe we think initially is Arnold, but 
just this is a scene we saw in the season two premiere. So we just get the back end of the same scene that kicked off the season, both in the season two premiere and in this episode. It is in the letterbox. So that just throws a lot of wrenches <laughs> in my works because I'm like, okay, is this happening inside the matrix? Like, mm-hmm. is this interrogation scene? Like, I thought I understood what this interrogation scene was, which it is Dolores doing a, f- running a fidelity test on an Arnold consciousness, like in a Bernard body. Like uh, she's right. doing to Arnold what William was doing to Jim Delos. Uh, she says we've run this countless times. Uh, it's kind of fun to see a flip. Like, you know, it's a little annoying to once again be sold Arnold only to find out that he's not Arnold again. You know, like it's the same reverse they played in season one, only a little differently. And that's a little annoying to me. But um, but it's fun to see, you know, her take the tablet and her take the power and in that interaction and all of that. But like, is this not even happening in the real world at all? Is this not real at all? Is this uh, a lot of people on Reddit seem to think that's not even Dolores. They think it's Ford. And I'm like, that's that's. That's too slippery. That's too many possibilities for Westworld. Like if mm-hmm. if a Dolores could be Ford, like what's what do I even have to hold on to? And like if this is taking place inside Dream- Inception Matrixy Dreamland, well, okay, to what end then? To what end? Like I guess we're building like perhaps we're trying to build perhaps he's trying to like bootstrap an Arnold consciousness out of the the cradle. Uh, I and I don't know how. But she says they've run this simulation countless times, which means, which makes me feel like it's been happening inside the cradle for a while now. And maybe what that means is once they feel like they've perfected the Arnold consciousness inside the cradle, they can put it into a physical Bernard, who's who's conveniently sitting there with an empty head on on like you know plugged into the whole system you know so i mean that gets a big like i guess yeah exactly (laughs) i guess okay like i don't love that but i just i don't like it when it gets too layered with simulation and with fake stuff because you really this show um the way that it's built it, it gets very easy, easily things get very intangible very quickly. And you're like, wait, wait, I need, I need to have some sort of grip on this because otherwise it's just layering itself into abstraction. And, um, and it, then, and then it kind of loses any of its stakes because like if, you know, if everything is fake, if everything's a simulation, if Maeve can do whatever she wants, if whatever, the minute that that sort of the show kind of almost metastasizes, you know, past its sort of like limit, um, then everything kind of starts to fall apart. And if we're now dealing with a, computer simulation within this this already kind of fake world then i don't know that's maybe like a layer too deep for me exactly and that's like as as soon as i realized that that was now a possibility that it's not just like okay we can do this we can figure out where we are and when we are uh Mm -hmm. in in the like real world we can we can anchor it we can figure it out we can make a timeline and now the nolans are like cool here's the simulation world where anyone could maybe be anyone at any given time i'm like it's too much it's too much and that's what this whole episode felt like to me is just like i felt so strongly in episode four and five that they had all the reins tightly under control that like we got this great lore episode in episode four we got this great like artistically expansive episode in episode five uh of shogun world and i didn't mind pressing pause on everything Uh, because at the end of the day, I'm not really sure why Maeve went to Shogun world. Like I'm not sure what her character learned in Shogun world other than it being beautiful. And I'm, I'm kind of okay with that. I'm okay with that. But this, uh, not just having every single character in this episode, but introducing the new uh, reality, I guess just felt, I just felt a lack of control and, um, and that that is worrisome to me but well the gray um, yeah. the greyhound finally caught that thing yes you know yeah. it doesn't know what to do with it <laughs> exactly exactly um so we should we should mention a few more things about the dolores plot line so after we get this opening um you know we get the ramification of what of what she did to teddy we get I mean, it felt a little on the nose to me, or maybe it's cute, I don't know, but like we've seen so many times Teddy uh 
Teddy stooped down uh, to pick up the milk can, uh, you know, saying, like, just trying to look chivalrous or whatever. Don't mind me. And this time he stoops down and picks up the bullet that's next to the can. And we're like, okay, we get it. You're a mm-hmm. killer now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and and we, we both said that we were excited to see what Marsden would do with this new thing. So far, it's a lot of, like, I don't know, stoicism. He's changed his physicality, which I... I like. Uh, what, what do you think of, of this new Marsden? You know, it's funny. Like, I, it's it, it's fun watching him in a different mode, I guess. Yeah. But, like, the more I was watching it last night, the more I was like, okay, maybe the new mode could have been him being like, hello. Like, maybe he could have been, like, big <laughs> queenie or something. Because, like, we've seen plenty of, like, har- like squint-eyed, you know, flinty killers on this show, right? Like, so it's not actually that shocking to watch him, like, murder somebody and then basically give a guy a bullet to kill himself later in the episode. Like, okay. Yeah. Like, we've seen that. But, like, maybe some other very if 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 Dolores had been feeling especially uh you know uh anarchist she could have done something else with him rather than turn him into this but um you know good for Mars and then he gets to kind of be the tough guy after a season and a half of being sort of a dope the dum-dum oh my god I'm really I'm really sad for the uh the queenie teddy that might have been season three maybe in the simulation in the cradle yes yes anyone can be anyone in the cradle um so we we get a lot in this episode of like you know teddy doing ruthless things teddy also having like a lot of resentment not for his creators but it seems like dolores he's like well i guess you fix that guess you fix that too like and dolores having this uh, perma expression of i've made a huge mistake um and you're like you think like what did you think was gonna happen dolores when you dialed his cruelty all the way up 200 uh something we should say uh sorry like a little um i guess uh, housekeeping note is that we discussed uh the pro the programming settings like what exactly she did to marzen because we got a shot in our screener that was not released with the episode that went on hbo and oh is that right yeah that shot of like the controls didn't make it into the final edit so we had some people being like what are you talking about um that's that's what we were talking about so I, i i guess um well i guess i mean that goes back to my point from the beginning of this episode like watching tv like a normal person is for, for the birds <laughs> for the birds we get extra info on the screen. like bring me back to the simulation <laughs> but um but i guess i'm like and then i'm trying to figure out why hbo or or the nolans would not want that shot in the final edit my only guess would be um so like cruelty was dialed all the way up loyalty was dialed up to um 19 out of 20 uh actually kim renfro who writes for insider pointed this out to me like we were we were both trying to figure out why they would leave that out loyalty was dialed up to 19 out of 20 and so she's like is it maybe because it wasn't 20 out of 20 like that's a hint that he's going to like turn on her he certainly seems very resentful of her in this episode uh there certainly don't seem to be remotely in love anymore so who knows but yeah apologies for that uh uh disorienting thing that we talked about in the last episode that's why we did it um and then we get this this uh we figured out why they needed the train they needed it as a sort of a bomb or a battering ram in order to get into the mesa and they've killed one tech and they leave the other one on the train and i just actually just got a tweet from uh a friend of mine who was like if dolores is so concerned about teddy being like his behavior Maybe she should just have the tech dial him back to, oh, that's why you don't put the tech on the bomb train. <laughs> like, Dolores <laughs> is all out of techs now. Uh, yeah. So maybe she can't reset uh, Teddy back to, you know, a little a little kinder, gentler version of him. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, so we've got, we've got Dolores' posse, which is Angela, Clementine, and Teddy sort of, you know, glintily staring down the mesa as they send a bomb towards it. And like I said before, that bomb rocks – Elsie and Bernard, it rocks Charlotte. And so we have those three timelines are all synced up. So this is one week into the two weeks. Dolores and her murderous robots have arrived. Yeah. Uh, and I have do not have high hopes for this new extraction team's survival. So Yeah, it's a bit like um when when we we record this podcast and we count down and say one at the same time to sort of sync up the audio, yeah, this bomb synced up, yeah, you know, yeah, 
synced up all these narratives, which is really helpful. You it know, is. It was a very helpful explosion. Yeah. If if they're going to introduce a new world where anything could be anything at any time, the least mm-hmm. they can do is sync up the uh, the modern storyline. And I and I anticipate we're about to like you know they're about to kill a bunch of people in the real world. Everything's about to condense uh, yeah. a little bit. So. We shall see. Uh, and then the episode ended with Joe Pantoliano eating a steak with Hugo Weaving. <laughs> <laughs> Not <Exactly>. like this. <laughs> I love that line. Uh, Not like this. Not like uh, anyway, uh, sorry. Yeah. No, let's. I'm here for all of every early aughts reference you ever want to make. Um, all right. Is there anything else we want to want to talk about in this episode? No, I think we went long, and uh, I guess that's a testament maybe to the to this episode needing a bit more unpacking to appreciate uh, than others. But um, yeah, I think we I think we solved what the cradle is. We know fully what that is, what it means for the show. Definitely, absolutely, <laughs> it's, very, it's very clear <laughs> where we're headed in the future. Yeah, everything is in a nice little tidy package. <laughs> All right. That is it for us this week. Richard, where can people find your work on the internet? Uh, in the cradle. So uh, you have to get, get hardwired into a thing. Uh, and then you can access a, a letterboxed version of VF.com uh, and a letterboxed version of at Rylaws on Twitter. Uh, I am inside the Mesa where I am constantly being bombarded by train bombs. You can find me there at VF.com. Clarifying train bombs. <laughs> Clarifying train bombs. Uh, and discerning witches uh, and you can find me on Twitter at Joe wrote this please do uh, write into us at stillwatchingpod at gmail.com if you have any questions comments or concerns we would love to get some emails for you now that we are back in sync with the rest of the viewing population and we will see you next week these violent delights violent ends hi I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th. From PR. 